Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. And as we continue our sermon series through some of the Psalms, today we'll be reflecting on Psalm 112 that Mary read earlier as our children are being dismissed. I see them making their way out. But before we do that this morning, I'm going to introduce a practice to us that we've been doing in our Sunday morning journey group now for the last several months before we start that time. We take a bit of a pause, just a moment of quiet. No one's talking, there's no music, just quiet. And really releasing ourselves to the Lord, asking him to clear out the things that distract us, the things even maybe that we just prayed about, and just allowing him the space to come in and be heard by us in this brief time that we share together this morning. So let's take this moment of quiet. We pray now, God, you would be with us as we share in this time in your word. As I mentioned, we're going to continue our study for the next few weeks leading up to Lent um, in the book of Psalms. And um, there's a real simplicity to this Psalm 112 um, with a clear and basic message, but it's also one that serves as a reminder to what God calls us to in our day-to-day living. Stephen Mackey reminded us that the way of Jesus is our continual objective. But it takes daily practice to live in that open-handed posture and submission to the Father, to learn how to breathe deep, receive humbly, and release indiscriminately, responding intentionally to God's Holy Spirit. But here's the key sentence he says in this admonition to us in his recent book. He says, the slow and daily drip, 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 of steady faithfulness is what produces a life that grows in the discerning of God's remarkable presence, power, protection, and peace. This is his description of righteous living, which is what we're going to be focusing on today and is what Psalm 112 calls us to, everyday faithfulness in every aspect of life. So this word righteous that we read often throughout all of scripture is in this psalm. But it also makes me wonder, what comes to your mind when you think of that word? A lot of times we read words over and over in scripture, but if someone asks us to actually define them, it might be a little tricky. But the psalms are full of expressions about what the righteous are, how they live their lives, And so I did some digging of my own over these past few weeks as I prepared the message for today. Some of the definitions that I came across is to live righteously is to conduct one's life 
in an upright manner and with moral standards that reflect our relationship with the Lord. As representative to the kingdom of God in all that we do, we should mirror his ways. This will mean even in the face of evil, doing what is right. The path of the righteous is to walk by God's side, to be committed to him, loyal to him, faithful to him. Another author writes that God cleans us up and gives us Christ as our righteousness. In this psalm, we read that a righteous person fears God. And we know that that word fear, translated properly, doesn't mean afraid, but it means to be reverent towards God and the things of God. There's a few passages that speak very directly to what righteous living looks like. Grab a hold of these as they'll connect to a few stories later in the message. We read throughout scripture, uh, in Jeremiah, we're reminded a righteous person delights in God's word. What does that mean for me and for you? How do we demonstrate delight in God's word? Joshua tells us in the first chapter of his book that by his writing, he says, be strong, and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. When we meditate on God's word day and night and are careful to live it out, live out what it calls us to, we are demonstrating that delight in God's word. Psalm 1-6 reminds us, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked lead to destruction. In the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In today's Psalm, we're reminded that God's light will dawn on the righteous to those who are gracious, compassionate, and generous and lend freely. Those are descriptors of the one living in Christ's righteousness. In verses 4 and 5, we read, Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. In this verse 5, it reminds us the Lord, the God we serve, is gracious and compassionate. And so the righteous, those of us who profess Christ, are also gracious and compassionate. These are not optional traits for us to develop. They're scriptural descriptors of how God's followers are to look to the world. We look for ways to extend kindness to the deserving and the undeserving. Because that's what God calls us to. He shows mercy when we most need it. He demonstrates his graciousness to us when we are lost in our own messes. I wonder where do we need some of God's grace today and where might we need to extend it to someone today. God shares his light and his love and his gifts with us with great generosity. That's a key word in this scripture. He is a generous God. The righteous lend with generous hearts, scattering their gifts to the poor. And remember, the poor are not just poor in resources. Often references in scripture, when you hear that word poor, it means 
poor in other ways, poor in spirit, perhaps. Verse 9 reminds us, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. And this use of resources or sharing with others isn't just a once a year donation type of thing that we're called to, but rather a generous spirit in the day in and day out that's ever looking for ways to reach out to the downtrodden, the dispirited, the lost soul, and those that may have financial needs. Why do we do that? Not so we'll feel better about ourselves or other people will think that we're good. We do those things because that is what Jesus did for us. And God continues to lend his generosity to us. So we do it, all of those things, out of love for him. That's why we come here. That's why we seek to be a healing agent in the world, just because of all he has done for us. And our lives centered in him is to do just what he did. The needs are great all around us. Yes, watch the news lately. The needs are great all around us. And the righteous one, the one who follows Jesus with deep sincerity of heart, look for ways to spread the news, the very seeds of the gospel that this passage references. When I read these passages, I thought of our dear friend, Lou Upham. Lou was in the office this week to visit the staff and, of course, to bring some of her home-baked goods to us. And I often reflect on how, in the midst of all her limitations, she's always scattering the seeds of the gospel. She tells me when I visit with her over lunch, which is equivalent to two meals every time, she tells me she doesn't get down or discouraged because she keeps herself busy, and I say it's because her focus is always outward. It's not about what she doesn't have, but how can she give? When she finishes one round of baking, which is her ministry, and delivers it to the many that she ministers to, she's always thinking of the next round. Neighbors, friends near and far, children, grandchildren, 19 great-grandchildren, and our staff. It never stops. She shows up for all of our birthdays, spouses' birthdays. She gives herself away, even at 91 years old. She does what she can, using her resources, her time, and her talents to expand the kingdom, generously scattering seeds. Righteous living calls for this. Sometimes that giving will be sacrificial. It'll take time we do not always have. It'll take resources we would often rather use for something else. It'll mean serving people that are different than us or people that are difficult at times. But that is the path of righteous living. But let's take another peek into the psalm because this is key to our understanding of this passage that we're looking at today. Verses 6 through 8, it reads, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. Now note here, it doesn't say bad news will not come to the righteous. There is no promise in Scripture that says if we live according to it, 
We'll never have bad days or bad seasons or bad things happen in our lives. And honestly, we wouldn't really need endurance or steadfastness if things were good all the time. It just says the righteous do not live in fear of it. Fear of it is where we need God to jump in. In our aim to live full of Jesus, fully focused on him, we're called to release those fears to him. Because the news of illness, great disappointment, losses of earthly things like employment, friendships, even the loss of a loved one, we all know these things are going to happen from time to time. And when we release it to God, the steadfast part happens. The Bible is full of that admonition to not fear. And we know God will sustain us in those trying places, in those sad places, in those places of non-answers. That's his word to us today in Psalm 112. David states it clearly in Psalm 57 when he says, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. And sometimes we just need to proclaim that. I mean, truth be told, hear this again. We don't find ourselves repeating these verses about steadfastness and endurance when life is good. And how grateful we are that we all have those good seasons in our lives, too. But that need for steadfast and the reminder to be steadfast is most needed when the road gets rough and the answers are few and the future seems very uncertain. But another reminder here for all of us today is there's a distinct difference between righteous living for Jesus and self-righteousness. Unfortunately, often in the church, we're accused of being self-righteous, following easily into the judgment of others, both in and out of the church. A self-righteous mindset and attitude does not honor Jesus and shows itself in pride. Often we slip into self-righteous behaviors. We become intolerant or smug or even think somehow we are morally superior to those around us. We're quick to criticize and fault finds, and those traits oppose the righteousness found in Christ. So it's important that we call to mind regularly our righteousness comes only from Jesus. It's not found in our good deeds or even how much we know about the Bible. In our quest to live in the righteousness God calls us to, it's essential that our connection is to Jesus not to Christianity and our definition of it, not even to our churches or our programs or preferences, but to Jesus. Hear that again. It's essential. Our connection is to Jesus. The call is to be an imitator of him. Paul gives us clear words of what it looks like to emulate Jesus. First, he reminds us in Ephesians 5.1, imitate God. Notice the simplicity of that statement. It doesn't mention church, a denomination, a particular theology, or even what we might define as Christianity. Plain and simple, he writes, imitate God. God's ways are made clear through the teaching of Scripture, and Paul's letters do it so well. Over and over, there's everyday teachings about how we are called to live, how we're called to speak, how we're called to manage anger, how we're called to listen. And here's one of them from his letter to the church at Colossae. 
He gives us very clear descriptions. First, he tells us what we need to get rid of. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. And then he tells us what we must do. Following those verses, therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. These passages give clear and practical verbiage to what righteous living looks like. And yes, we all know we cannot do this in our own strength and might. But the Holy Spirit that lives in us and that Jesus promised will empower us to do that. Day by day, situation by situation, in each of our lives. A few years back, I participated in a um, baptism service at a church just south of where Joe and I live, a woman that I had taught in her high school years in a different church um, asked me to be there for her baptism. And so somehow, as a result of our time there that day, I ended up on their mailing list, and I weekly received these electronic notes that the pastor publishes, and he calls them Neil's Notables. And a few weeks back, he wrote this piece on the call of the church and our commitment to one another. And as I read it, I thought it really coincided what, with what I sensed the Lord wanted me to share on Psalm 112. So Pastor Neal says, the church's vision is to transform individuals, churches, and communities by connecting them to Jesus, to Jesus' people, and to his mission. Is our church transforming individuals, transforming communities by connecting people to Jesus? He says, being connected, living righteously, involves an intentional, specific, personal commitment to believe in Christ as one's Lord and Savior. But, this is a big but, that connection needs to stay active. We hear this clearly when Jesus says in John 15, remain in me and I in you. Taking up one's cross, staying vitally connected to him, guided by fervent prayer and active guidance by the word and the spirit, which we've talked about this morning. So, hear this, being connected is both static, but it's also dynamic as we live it out every day. But it also leads to being connected to others who share that same connection with Christ and draws us into that heart connection to the mission. This calls us to a choice, he says, both congregationally and as individuals. You cannot fulfill God's purpose for your life without making the choice to stay connected. And I, nor anyone else, can make that choice for you. 
And he says, congregationally, we also need to make that collective choice. Our personal choices affect others. But beyond that, having a collective heart to be used by God takes being collectively connected to him and each other. And without that, he says, we're just doing church rather than extending the kingdom. And he concludes with, and I don't want to just do church. I'm grateful for Pastor Neil's words, and I concur with him. I don't want to just do church either. I want righteous living to be so evident that people are drawn to you and to me, wondering what it is that brings that light out in our lives. I want to be there to be such evidence of Jesus living in us, and even the smallest encounters. Not knowledge of what church we go to, or even that we say we're Christians, but true everyday evidence of Jesus in our attitudes and our choices, our generous spirits, that they can't help but ask what is different about them. Do the things we give our time and energy to contribute to the extension of God's kingdom? I'll finish up with this piece, a little extensive, but it's from a pastor out in Tennessee, and he's preparing to retire after 30 years in ministry. And he's writing these words to the leaders that will come after him. And that's something that each church should always be doing. What is the message we have for those who will follow behind? So Pastor Michael Glenn wrote this piece and after the 30 years or so um, at this church in Tennessee. And his words really gripped my heart because I have been mulling very similar thoughts for a good few years now about the church in general. These are a few of them. He starts his writing off with, he says, we won't be building church campuses like we used to. Churches will be centered in neighborhoods and communities. They will be central to community life seven days a week. The rising generations will not financially support the construction of large facilities. Future facilities will be integrated into the neighborhood by providing everything from ESL, English as Second Language classes, to daycares for children and senior adults. More and more people will be brought into the church through weekday engagements as opposed to Sunday mornings. Now hear this part, this is key in everything I'm gonna share with you. He says, the ministry now comes before the message. Ministry before they ever sit here and hear a message. When people see the church loving community, they will want to know what motivates that love. Next point, he says, trauma is the new reality. For years, he says, we've been discussing the breakdown of the nuclear family without fully understanding the long-term ramifications. Now, these ramifications are being lived out in front of us. Few people you know, especially young adults, are stepping into their futures with a solid base for their lives. Most people are walking around with a giant hole in their heart, waiting for someone to validate their existence. This means that when we're dealing with people, the church isn't dealing with a clean slate. There's a lifetime of pain to deal with before any healing and growth can begin. 
important statement in calling for us as a community of faith. How are we prepared to hand off our faith to this generation of young adults and children? Even though they may come to us lost after a lifetime of pain before they ever get to us. And lastly, he says, this means that the gospel is needed now more than ever. The good news that we are loved and forgiving is amazing news in and of itself. But the invitation to live a life that we have always wanted, a life of purpose, meaning, joy, and hope, that's almost too good to believe. And a lot of people don't believe it. And that's why we have to find a way to our best preaching. In a world this dark, we can't be shy with the light that we have. And that preaching doesn't come from here. That preaching comes from all of us. Remember, ministry before message. Most of them are not coming here to hear the message. We know that collectively in the church at large. Most are not coming to hear the message. Remember, friends, we have the good news that this very broken world needs. Do you believe that? We have the good news that this very broken world needs. But if they can't get past our attitudes or are sometimes not so righteous living, we'll never get to that place, as he says, when people see the church, you and me, loving the community with no agenda. There won't be those opportunities to share the truth of who Jesus is. And let's just say it, that is what kingdom living is, loving the community that God has placed us in. And that only happens when we get ourselves right with God, all of us, one by one. Then we can be focused and busy about sharing the freedom and the rescue that Jesus came to bring. Appreciate Michael Glenn's words. Alan van der Grein writes, in a very real sense, Jesus himself was both the mission and the message. To everyone, whether poor, blind, imprisoned, or oppressed, the message was clear. God himself was walking among the people of the earth, and nothing would ever be the same. God's favor had come to the world through the person of his son, Jesus. We just celebrated that last month. The gospel message that we have, van der Grein says, is still the same. God is walking among us. He has come to dwell in his people as they live amongst the poor, the blind, the imprisoned and oppressed. And he has come to make a difference. And he carries that mission out today through his people, through us. Ultimately, his mission is our mission. Are we living on mission today? Are there things we give our time and energy to actually extending the kingdom of God? Friends, church has to look different in 2023 because this world is so very different. So when we leave here today, we must leave with the preeminent thought that there's a dying world out there. And I am the hands and feet of Jesus to the lovely and the unlovely, to the rich and the poor, to the believer and the non-believer, to the widow and the orphans, the grieving and the homeless. There is no time 
to be wasted. I'm sure when Ezekiel received the word from God, as we read in Ezekiel 37 about prophesying over the dry bones, that he had his share of reluctance in his spirit, as we might have today, looking at what sometimes seems so dark and so hopeless. It didn't seem possible to him that God could do something in the ruins of Israel where the bones of Jerusalem's people were still lying in the city's rubble. Imagine that sight for a moment. Sometimes we may mirror those feelings as we look over the terrain of our world, the broken families, the violence, reckless living, and the forms of ungodliness all around us. We may feel just as Ezekiel did as he looked on all of those dry bones. But God said he would call breath to enter into those bones and bring life to them. A classic illustration of spiritual revival that we need in these days. So even as things may seem too big or hopeless to us, let's be found ready to hear God's word to us today. First as his church, to be active in scattering seeds and bringing life and hope where there seems to be none.